liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Are you a hot sauce fanatic? Maybe a casual hot sauce fan who forgets to buy some until after you've already left the store, whichever you are. Tennessee Hot Sauce Company has you covered. Check that out. I just got my own box, actually two full boxes, eight different hot sauces. We got Blood Orange Ghost. We got Miami Mango, Ginger Jalapeno, Poblano Jalapeno. Son, I am pumped. I am pumped to try these. Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is a new small batch quarterly hot sauce subscription. They source the freshest ingredients and focus on the perfect balance of flavor and heat to elevate your dishes. Subscribers also get access to exclusive surprise seasonal sauces that change with each box, pushing the limits of creativity and spice. Sign up now to be a founding member. Do that. Come on. Listener of the show, libertarian, part of the community, be a founding member. Help a business, help a small, small batch business get off the ground. How fucking cool is that? For not a lot of money, you can actually help one of our people get off the ground. I think that's amazing. And if you do that, you get to access perks such as permanent 10% discount, exclusive sauces, and regular giveaways as a thank you to the growing community. Go to www.tnhotsauceco.com. That's TN like Tennessee, hot sauce, CO like company.com, and sign up with promo code Liberty to be entered into a drawing to win one of only 20 bottles of Miami Mango to celebrate my move to the free state and specially crafted for the beautiful listeners of Liberty Lockdown. Again, go to tnhotsauceco.com and use promo code Liberty to get that Miami Mango, baby. Let's go. There are rare times in life when you've been lied to and the lies can persist no longer. This week, the Vanity Fair article that is shaking up the world, it's very new. Most people probably haven't heard of it yet. And even fewer people have taken the time to read it because it is extremely long. But it is incredible. And I've, I've felt a due to get it to you guys as soon as possible because ultimately this proves out much of what I've been saying, what sure you've been thinking and believing and talking about too. And this is our opportunity for the truth to be known. And I will not be putting this on YouTube because they still don't like the truth, the scumbags. So this will be on my locals exclusively. Thank you for being a supporter. If you're watching this right now, it's libertylockdown.locals.com. And if you are not a supporter, that's okay. Enjoy the audio version. This is a must listen. It's a must read, but I know people's times, uh, you know, time is short. You don't have enough energy or bandwidth to be able to process this all. So I'm going to do it for you. You're welcome. Trust me, it is worth hearing this. So this article came out on March 31st. So that's just four days ago. This shouldn't happen, quote, quote, inside the virus hunting nonprofit at the center of the lab leak controversy. On June 18th, 2021, an evolutionary biologist named Jesse D. Bloom sent the draft of an unpublished scientific paper he'd written to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the chief medical advisor to the president of the United States. A bespectacled, a bespectacled boyish looking 43 year old, often clad in short sleeve checkered shirts. Bloom specializes in the study of how viruses evolve. He is 
the most ethical scientist I know, end quote, said Sergey Pound, a fellow evolutionary biologist. Quote, he wants to dig deep and discover the truth, end quote. The paper Bloom had written, known as a preprint, because it had yet to be peer-reviewed or published, contained sensitive revelations about the National Institutes of Health, the federal agency that oversees biomedical research. In the interest of transparency, he wanted Fauci, who helms an NIH sub-agency, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the NIAID, to see it ahead of time. Under ordinary circumstances, the preprint might have sparked a respectful exchange of ideas, but this was no ordinary preprint and no ordinary moment. More than a year into the pandemic, the genesis of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused COVID-19, was still a mystery. Most scientists believed that it had made the leap from bats to humans naturally, being an intermediary species, most likely at a Wuhan market in, or most likely at a market in Wuhan, China, where live wild animals were slaughtered and sold. But a growing contingent were asking if it could have originated inside a nearby laboratory that is known to have conducted risky coronavirus research funded in part by the United States. <coughs> As speculation, sober and otherwise, swirled, the NIH was being bombarded by Freedom of Information Act lawsuits. That's FOIA. Fauci himself needed a security detail, owing to death threats from conspiracy theorists who believed he was covering up some dark secrets. Hey, that's us. Bloom's paper was the product of detective work he'd undertaken after noticing that a number of early SARS-CoV-2 genomic sequences mentioned in a published paper from China had somehow vanished without a trace. The sequences, which map the nucleotides that give a virus its unique genetic identity, are key to tracking when the virus emerged and how it might have evolved. In Bloom's view, their, disappear their disappearance raised the possibility that the Chinese government might be trying to hide evidence about the pandemic's early spread. Piecing together clues, Bloom established that the NIH itself had deleted the sequences from its own archive at the request of researchers in Wuhan. Now, he was hoping Fauci and his boss, NIH Director Francis Collins, could help him identify other deleted sequences that might shed light on the mystery. Bloom had submitted the paper to a preprint server, a public repository of scientific papers awaiting peer review, on the same day that he'd sent a copy to Fauci and Collins. It now existed in a kind of twilight zone, not published and not yet public, but almost certain to appear online soon. Collins immediately organized a Zoom meeting for Sunday, June 20th. He invited two outside scientists, evolutionary biologist Christian Anderson and virologist Robert Gary, and allowed Bloom to do the same. Bloom chose Pond and Rasmus Nielsen, a genetic biologist. That is what that it was shaping up like an old-fashioned duel with seconds in attendance did not cross Bloom's mind at the time. But six months after the meeting, he reminded he remained so troubled by what transpired that he wrote a detailed account which Vanity Fair obtained. <clears throat> after Bloom described his research, the Zoom meeting became extremely contentious, he wrote. Anderson leapt in, saying he found the preprint deeply troubling. If the Chinese scientists wanted to delete their sequences from the database, which NIH policy entitled them to do, it was unethical for Bloom to analyze them further, he claimed. And there was nothing unusual about the early genomic sequence in Wuhan. Holy shit. Instantly, Nielsen and Anderson were yelling at each other, wrote, with Nielsen insisting that the early Wuhan sequences were extremely puzzling and unusual. Anderson, who'd had some of his emails with Fauci from early in the pandemic publicly released through FIO, FOIA requests, leveled a third objection. 
Anderson, Bloom wrote, needed security outside his house and my preprint would fuel conspiratorial notions that China was hiding data and thereby lead to more criticism of scientists such as himself. Fauci then weighed in, objecting to the preprint's description of Chinese scientists surreptitiously deleting the sequences. The word was loaded, said Fauci, and the reason they'd asked for the deletions was unknown. That's when Anderson made a suggestion that surprised Bloom. He said he was a screener at the preprint server, which gave him access to papers that weren't yet public. He then offered to either entirely delete the preprint or revise it, quote, in a way that would leave no record that this had been done, end quote. Bloom refused, saying that he doubted either option was appropriate, given the contentious nature of the meeting. At that point, both Fauci and Collins distanced themselves from Anderson's offer, with Fauci saying, as Bloom recalled it, just for the record, I want to be clear that I never suggested you delete or, rev or revise the preprint, end quote. They seemed to know that Anderson had gone too far. Yeah, I would say so. Telling him to delete his paper was a little too far. Jesus. Both Anderson and Gary denied that anyone in the meeting suggested deleting or revising the paper. Anderson said Bloom's account was false. Gary dismissed it as nonsense. Sergey Pond, however, confirmed Bloom's account as accurate after having read it aloud to him. Quote, I don't remember the exact phrasing. I didn't take any notes, but from what, I, from what you described, that sounds accurate. I definitely felt bad for poor Jesse. End quote. He added that the charged up atmosphere struck him as inappropriate for a scientific meeting. A spokesman for Fauci declined to comment. The wagon circling on that Zoom call reflected a siege mentality at the NIH, whose cause was much larger than Bloom and the missing sequence. It couldn't be made to disappear with creative editing or deletion, and it all began with a once obscure science nonprofit in Manhattan that had become the conduit for federal grant money to a Wuhan research laboratory. In 2014, Fauci's agency had issued a $3.7 million grant to EcoHealth Alliance, a non-governmental organization dedicated to predicting and helping to prevent the next pandemic by identifying viruses that could leap from wildlife to humans. The grant, titled Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence, proposed to screen wild and captive bats in China, analyze sequences in the laboratory to gauge the risk of bat viruses infecting humans, and build predictive models to examine future risk. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, WIV, was a key collaborator to whom EcoHealth Alliance gave almost 600 grand in subawards. But the work there had been controversial enough that the NIH suspended the grant in July 2020. As it happened, EcoHealth Alliance failed to predict the COVID-19 pandemic, even though it erupted into public view at the Hunan uh, Seafood Wholesale Market, a short drive from the WIV itself. In the ensuing months, every move of EcoHealth Alliance and its voluble president, Peter Daszak, came under scrutiny by a small army of scientific, scientific sleuths and assorted journalists. Hey, that's us. What they wanted to know had really gone on at the WIV. I would still love to know. Why had Daszak been so cagey about the work his organization had been funding there? And were Fauci and other officials trying to direct attention away from research that the US, U.S. had been, at least indirectly, financing? The dispute over COVID-19's origins has become increasingly acrimonious with warring camps of scientists trading personal insults on Twitter feeds. Natural origin proponents argue that the virus, like so many before it, emerged from the well-known phenomenon of natural spillover, jumping from bat host to an intermediate species before going on to infect humans. Those suspecting a lab-related incident point to an array of possible scenarios, from inadvertent exposure of a scientist during field research to the accidental release of a natural or manipulated strain during laboratory work. The lack of concrete evidence supporting either theory has only increased the rancor. 
everyone is looking for a smoking gun that would render any reasonable doubt impossible, says Amir Adaran, a biologist and lawyer at the University of uh, Ottawa. Without cooperation from the Chinese government, that may be impossible. In 2018, Dazak had appeared on Chinese state-run TV and said, quote, the work we do with Chinese collaborators is published jointly in international journals and the sequence data is uploaded onto the internet, free for everyone to read, very open, very transparent, and very collaborative. He added, science is naturally transparent and open. You do something, you discover something, you want to tell the world about it, that's the nature of scientists, end quote. But as COVID-19 rampaged across the globe, the Chinese government's commitment to transparency turned out to be limited. It has refused to share raw data from early patient cases or participate in any further international efforts to investigate the virus uh, virus's origin. And in September 2019, three months before the officially recognized start of the pandemic, the Wuhan Institute of Virology took down its database of some 22,000 virus samples and sequences, refusing to restore it despite international requests. Hello, smoking gun. As for transparency-minded scientists in the U.S., Dazek early on set about covertly organizing a letter in the Lancet Medical Journal that sought to present the lab leak hypothesis as a groundless and destructive conspiracy theory. And Fauci and a small group of scientists, including Anderson and Gary, worked to enshrine the natural origin theory during confidential discussions in early February 2020, even though several of them privately expressed they felt the lab-related incident was likely-er. Just days before those discussions began, Vanity Fair has learned Dr. Robert Redfield, a virologist and the director of the CDC and prevention, had urged Fauci privately to vigorously investigate both the lab and natural hypotheses. He was then excluded from the ensuing discussions, learning only later that they even occurred. Quote, their goal was to have a single narrative, end quote, Redfield told Vanity Fair. Well, how do you do? Why top scientists linked arms to tamp down public speculation about a lab leak, even when their emails revealed via FOIA requests and congressional reviews suggest they held similar concerns, remains unclear. I have a thesis, folks, huh? Maybe it's because we funded it. Maybe it's because we knew about it. Maybe it's because we wanted it. Was it simply because their views shifted in favor of a natural origin? Could it have been to protect science from the ravings of conspiracy theorists, like Clint over at Liberty Lockdown? or to protect against a revelation that could prove fatal to certain risky research that they deem indispensable, or to protect vast streams of grant money from political interference or government regulation. The effort to close the debate in favor of the natural origin hypothesis continues today. In February, the New York Times gave front page treatment to a set of preprints written by Michael Warroby at the University of Arizona, Christian Anderson at Scripps Research Institute and 16 co-authors, including Gary, claiming that a new analysis of public data from the Huanan market in Wuhan provided dispositive evidence that the virus first leapt to humans from animals sold there. But a number of top scientists, Bloom among them, questioned that assertion, saying the preprints, while worthy, relied on incomplete data and found no infected animal. Quote, I don't think they offer proof. They provide evidence that more strongly supports the link to the wild animal market than to the WIV, and that's the way I would have phrased it, says W. Ian Limpkin, an epidemiologist at Columbia University who favors the natural origin theory. Some scientists seem also hellbent on naming the Hunan market as the site of the origin of the pandemic, and some members of the media seem more than happy to embrace these conclusions without careful examination, said Stanford microbiologist David Roman. 
quote, this issue is far too important to be decided in the public domain by unreviewed studies, incomplete and unconfirmed data, and unsubstantiated proclamations, end quote. Perhaps more than anyone, Peter Daszak, a Western scientist immersed in Chinese coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, was uniquely positioned to help the world crack open the origin mystery, not least by sharing what he knew. But last year, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, the Columbia University economist who oversees the Lancet's COVID-19 commission, dismissed Daszak from the helm of a task force investigating the virus's genesis after he flatly refused to share progress reports from his contested research grant. In written responses to detailed questions, Daszak said he was, quote, simply following NIH guidance, end quote, when he declined Sachs' request because the agency was withholding the reports in question, quote, until they had adjudicated an FOIA request, end quote. The reports are now publicly available, he said. Quote, Daszak and NIH have acted badly, end quote, Sachs told Vanity Fair. There has been a lack of transparency and there is a lot more to know and that can be known, end quote. He said that the NIH should support an independent scientific investigation to examine the possible role in the pandemic of the NIH, EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and a partner laboratory at the University of North Carolina. Both hypotheses are still very much with us, he said, and need to be investigated seriously and scientifically. We are also on record as welcoming independent scientific investigation into the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dazek told Vanity Fair. This story is based on more than 100,000 internal EcoHealth Alliance documents obtained by Vanity Fair, as well as interviews with five former staff members and 33 other sources. The documents, most of which predate the pandemic, span a number of years and include budget, staff, and board meeting minutes and internal emails and reports. While the documents do not tell us where COVID-19 came from, they shed light on the world in which EcoHealth Alliance has operated, one of murky grant agreements, flimsy oversight, and the pursuit of government funds for scientific advancement, in part by pitching research of steeply escalating risk. The story of how Dazek's grant entangled Fauci in the specter of Wuhan coronavirus research began years earlier at a stately Beaux Arts social club in Washington, D.C. For more than a decade, EcoHealth Alliance hosted a series of cocktail parties at the Cosmos Club near DuPont Circle to discuss the prevention of viral outbreaks. There, expert biologists, virologists, and journalists mingled with the true guests of honor, federal government bureaucrats who were in the position to steer grants. That's the whole game right there. On invitations, EcoHealth Alliance described the events as, quote, educational. Inside the nonprofit, however, officials called them, quote, cultivation events. The return on investment was excellent. For about $8,000 in Brie and Chardonnay per event, they got to network with prospective federal funders. As the organization's 2018 strategic plan spelled out, given our strength in federal funding, we enhanced our cultivation events at the Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C., which now regularly attracts 75 to 150 people at high level, high levels in government agencies, NGOs, and the private sector. These kinds of events are common among many non-governmental organizations and nonprofits, which depend upon both public and private donors for support, Dazak told Vanity Fair. Yeah, we're not saying they're uncommon, Dazak. We're just saying they're scummy. Of all those high-level people, Almost no one ranked as high as Fauci, a scientific kingmaker who dispensed billions in grant money each year, and Dazek was determined to share a podium with him. 
The idea was admittedly a reach. Though he'd met with Fauci and received funding from his agency, Dazak was relatively obscure, but he had cultivated back-channel access to the minders who, gar who guarded Fauci's calendar. On September 9, 2013, Dazak emailed Fauci's senior advisor, David Morentz, to see if the sought-after NIAID chief would be available as a panel speaker. Morenz emailed back recommending that Dazek write Tony directly, thanking him for meeting with you all recently and then inviting him to be a member of this Cosmos Club discussion. That way, it is personal and doesn't look cooked by us. Though Fauci, uh, though, though Fauci declined that invitation, several others, Dazek kept trying. In February 2016, Morenz passed along a valuable tip. Fauci normally says no to almost everything like this unless ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox are all there with cameras running. <laughs> If he were asked to give the main talk or the only talk, that might increase the chances, end quote. What a narcissist. The gambit worked. Fauci signed on to give a presentation on the Zika virus at the Cosmos Club on March 30th, and the RSVPs flowed in. The guests came from an array of deep-pocketed federal agencies the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Pentagon, even NASA. As Dazak would declare at a board meeting on December 15th, the, quote, Washington, D.C. cultivation events have been a great way to increase our visibility to the federal funders, according to meeting minutes. A month earlier, Donald Trump had been elected president. One board member at the meeting asked what his incoming administration might mean for conservation nonprofit dependent on federal grants. Dazak offered breezy reassurance. The organization's apolitical mission would help it adapt. Little did he know that in the era of Trump and COVID-19, science itself would become the ultimate political background. If a shared podium with Fauci proved that Dazak had become a true player among virus hunters, it also underscored just how far he had come. For years, Peter Dazak sat at the helm of a struggling nonprofit with a mission to save manatees, promote responsible pet ownership, and celebrate threatened species. The organization, which operated under the name Wildlife Trust until 2010, was constantly on the hunt for ways to close its budget shortfalls. One year, it proposed to honor at its annual benefit a mining company operating in Liberia that was paying it to assess the risk of Ebola virus. Another idea was to seek donations from palm oil millionaires leveling rainforests who might be interested in, quote, cleaning up their image. Balding and usually clad in hiking gear. Hey, don't take shots at bald guys. Uh, Dazek was one part salesman, one part visionary. He saw clearly that human incursions into the natural world could lead to the emergence of animal pathogens, with bats a particularly potent reservoir. Dazek was, quote, making a bet that bats were harboring deadly viruses, end quote, said Dr. Matthew McCarthy, an associate professor of medicine at Well Cornell Medical Center in New York. In 2004, as a 23-year-old Harvard medical student, McCarthy followed Dazek to Cameroon to trap bats. Quote, I left my family, my friends, he said, it was a very powerful thing for people like me going into the most remote parts of the world. I was taken by him, hook, line, and sinker, end quote. The bioterror bio attacks of 2001, in which letters dusted with anthrax spores were sent through the U.S. mail, coupled with the first SARS coronavirus outbreak in China the following year, would bring money for the study of lethal natural, natural pathogens pouring into federal agencies. In 2003, the NIAID got an eye-popping $1.7 billion for research to defend against bioterrorism. And that's where all of our problems began. Dazek's office on Manhattan's far west side didn't have a laboratory. The closest bat colonies were in Central Park, but he cultivated an affiliation with Shi Zhengli, 
a Chinese scientist who would rise to become the director of the Wuhan Institute of Virology Center for Emerging, Emerging Infectious Diseases. Slight and sophisticated with an international education, she became known in China as, quote, Batwoman for her fearless exploration of their habitats. Dazek's alliance with her would open China's bat caves to him. In 2005, after conducting field research, research in four locations in China, Dazek and she co-authored their first paper together, which established that horseshoe bats were a likely reservoir for SARS-like coronaviruses. They would go on to collaborate on 17 papers. In 2013, they reported the discovery that a SARS-like bat coronavirus, which she had been the first to successfully isolate in a lab, might be able to infect human cells without first jumping to an intermediate animal. <laughs> Peter respected her, said the former EcoHealth Alliance staffer. In the view of everyone, they were doing great work for the world. Their partnership gave Dazek an uh, almost proprietary sense of the bat caves in Yunnan province, which he would later refer to in a grand proposal as, quote, our field test sites, end quote. As Dazek's staff and she's graduate students intermingled, traveling between Wuhan and Manhattan, the exchange flourished. When she visited New York, the EcoHealth staff selected a restaurant for a celebratory dinner with great care. Sing Lee is not one, of, one to stand on formality. She makes dumplings by hand with her students in the lab. Dazek's chief of staff wrote to another employee. She got her PhD in France, loves red wine, and likes good food above formality. By 2009, bats had turned into big money. That September, USAID awarded a $75 million grant called PREDICT, in all caps, to four organizations, including Dazak's. It was, quote, the most comprehensive zoonotic virus sur surveillance project in the world, end quote, USAID stated. And its purpose was to identify and predict viral emergence in part by sampling and testing bats and other wildlife in remote locations. The 18 million over five years awarded to what was then Wildlife Trust was a game changer. Dazak told his staff in an ecstatic email sharing the news, I want to take this opportunity despite seven hours of drinking champagne, literally to thank all of you for your support, <laughs> end quote. The money transformed the ragged nonprofit. It increased its budget by half, ending a years-long operating loss, began a long-deferred rebranding, which led to a new name, EcoHealth Alliance, and spruced up its headquarters, even fixing its chronically broken air conditioner. Over the course of the grant, it allocated $1.1 to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, USAID recently acknowledged in a letter to Congress. When Dr. Maureen Miller, an infectious disease epidemiologist, arrived at EcoHealth Alliance in 2014, she landed in an environment that she found to be toxic and secretive. Closed-door meetings were the norm. The senior leadership constituted an unwelcoming old boys network. She soon came to believe that she was hired because they needed a senior-level woman, she said, adding, I was excluded from pretty much everything. She came aboard shortly before the organization's PREDICT grant was renewed for five more years. It was also the year the NIH approved understanding the risk of bat coronavirus emergence, the $3.7 grant that would come back to haunt Fauci. Miller said she was lured by the idea of being able to create a pandemic threats warning system, end quote. Miller got to work creating a surveillance strategy to detect zoonotic virus spillover. Chinese villagers living near bat caves in southern Yunnan province would have, have their blood tested for antibodies to a SARS-like coronavirus, then answer questionnaires to determine if certain behaviors had led them to be exposed. It was a, quote, biological and behavioral warning system, end quote, Miller explained. Over the next two years, Miller saw Dazek only a handful of times, but she worked closely with Zhi Zhengli, who developed the test to screen the village's blood. In that time, Miller noted, I never got a result from Xi via phone. I had to show up in China to learn anything from her. From that, Miller gleaned that while she was a world-class scientist, she respects the Chinese system, end quote. 
In short, she followed the Chinese government's rules. Xi Jinping did not respond to written questions for this article. Miller left EcoHealth Alliance in November 2016, never knowing what became of the strategies she developed. But in the fall of 2017, she alerted Miller's former assistant to the fact that Dazek was about to get credit for her work in an up upcoming publication. Quote, she went out of her way to ensure I would be included, end quote, Miller said. The final version of a letter, published in January 2018 in the Wuhan Institute of Virology's journal Virologica Sinica, included Miller's name. Six out of 218 villagers had tested positive for antibodies, suggesting that the strategy was a successful way to gauge potential spillover. But the experience left Miller with a dark impression of Dazek. He is so single-minded that he wants to be the one who makes the discovery without having to share, end quote. Dazek said Miller had been credited as a co-author in at least eight papers stemming from her work at EcoHealth Alliance, a testimony to the equity, fairness, and openness of our publication and authorship practices. He added that the nonprofit staff is diverse and culturally sensitive and has been majority female for 20 years. Oh, good. Good. As long as you're creating bioweapons, but there's a lot of women involved, that's awesome. Dazek's $3.7 million grant, uh, NIH grant, first set off alarm bells in early May 2016 as it entered its third year. The NIH requires annual progress reports, but Dazek's year two report was late and the agency threatened to withhold funds until he filed it. The report he finally did submit worried the agency's grant specialist. It stated that scientists planned to create an infectious clone of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. That's MERS, if you guys remember that one. A novel coronavirus found in dromedaries that had emerged in Saudi Arabia in 2012 and killed 35% of the humans it infected. The report also made clear that the NIH grant had already been used to construct two chimeric coronaviruses similar to the one that caused severe acute respiratory syndrome, that's SARS, which emerged in 2002 and went on to cause at least 774 deaths worldwide. The chimeric virus is one that combines fragments of different viruses. These revelations prompted the NIH's grant specialist to ask a critical question. Should the work be subject to a federal moratorium on what was called gain-of-function research? Question mark. With that, Dazek's grant got tangled in a years-long debate that had divided the virology community. In 2011, two scientists separately announced that they had genetically altered highly patho uh, pathogenetic Asian avian influenza, a H5N1, the bird flu virus that has killed at least 456 people since 2003. The scientists gave the virus new functions, enabling it to spread efficiently among ferrets, which are genetically closer to humans than mice, as a way to gauge its risk to people. Both studies had received NIH funding. This is nothing new. The scientific community erupted in conflict over what became known as gain-of-function research. Proponents claimed it could help prevent pandemics by highlighting potential threats. Critics argued that creating pathogens that didn't exist in nature ran the risk of unleashing them. No shit. As the dispute raged, Fauci worked to strike a middle ground, but ultimately supported the research, arguing in a co-authored Washington Post op-ed that, quote, important information and insights can come from generating a potentially dangerous virus in the laboratory, end quote. Fuck you, Fauci. Hmm, I'm pissed. In, in October 2014, the Obama administration imposed a moratorium on new federal funding for research that could make influenza MERS or SARS viruses more virulent or transmissible, while a review took place, but the moratorium as written left loopholes, which allowed Dazek to try to save the research. On June, 18th, on June 8th, 2016, he wrote to the NIH's grant specialist that the SARS-like chimeras from the completed experiment were exempt from the moratorium because the strains used had not previously been known to infect humans. He 
He also pointed to a 2015 research paper in which scientists had infected human humanized mice with the same strains. Well, that's concerning, humanized mice, and found that they were less lethal than the original SARS virus. But the 2015 research paper he cited was not particularly reassuring. In it, Shi Zheng Li and a preeminent coronavirus researcher at the University of North Carolina, Ralph Barrick, mixed components of SARS-like viruses from different species and created a novel uh, chimera that was able to directly infect human cells. Barrick did not respond to written questions seeking comment. This gain-of-function experiment, which had begun prior to the moratorium, was so fraught that the authors flagged the dangers themselves, writing, quote, scientific review panels may deem similar studies too risky to pursue, end quote. The paper's acknowledgement cited funding from the NIH and from EcoHealth Alliance through a different grant. If anything, the MERS study Dazek proposed was even riskier. So he pitched a compromise to the NIH that if any of the recombined strains showed 10 times greater growth than a natural virus, he will immediately, one, stop all experiments with the mutant, two, inform our NIAID program officer at the and the UNC Institute uh, Institutional Biosafety Committee, committee of these results and three, participate in decision-making trees to decide appropriate pass forward, end quote. This mention of UNC brought a puzzled response from an NIH program officer who pointed out that the pro proposal had said the research would be performed at the WIV. Can you clarify where the work with the chimeric virus uh, will actually be performed, end quote, the officer wrote. Ten days later, with still no response from Dazek, the program officer emailed him again. On June 27th, Dazek responded, buoyant as ever, quote, you are correct to identify a mistake in our letter. UNC has no oversight of the Chimera work, all of which will be conducted at the uh, WIV. We will clarify tonight with Professor Zhengli Shi exactly who will be notified if we see enhanced replication. My understanding is that I will be notified straight away as principal investigator and that I can then notify you at NIAID. Apologies for the error, end quote. By July 7th, the NIH agreed to DASX terms which relied entirely on mutual transparency. She would inform him of any concerning developments involving the lab-constructed viruses, and he would inform the agency. Dazak replied enthusiastically to a program officer, this is terrific. We are very happy to hear that our gain-of-function research funding pause has been lifted. So, hey, we weren't doing gain-of-function research, but we are very happy to hear that our gain-of-function research funding pause has been lifted. I mean, Fauci is so busted. Allowing such risky research to go forward at the WIV was simply crazy, in my opinion, says Jack Nunberg, director of the Montana uh, Biotechnology Center. Reasons are lack of oversight, lack of regulation, the environment in China, where scientists who publish in prestigious journals get rewarded by the government creating dangerous incentives, quote, so that, it, so that is what really elevates it to the realm of, no, this shouldn't be happening. A subsequent development seemed to support that view. On January 15, 2021, in the waning days of the Trump administration, the State Department released a fact, a fact sheet based on declassified intelligence. It, it asserted that Chinese military scientists had been collaborating with the WIV civilian scientists since 2017, if not earlier. That raised the question of whether research there was being repurposed for offensive or military uses. Though she and other WIV leaders had have previously denied such collaboration occurred, Former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger calls those, those denials, quote, willful lies. If one were to give them the benefit of the doubt, you might go so far as to say they have no choice but to lie, but these are lies nonetheless, end quote. If China's military had been collaborating with WIV scientists, it's unclear if Dazek would have realized it. 
He had far less visibility in the, into the WIV than he let on, a former EcoHealth Alliance staffer told Vanity Fair. The work being done there was, quote, always an enigma, end quote. The former staffer said, the nonprofit had hired a U.S.-based Chinese national who helped, quote, interpret from them what was happening inside, inside the WIV, but we had to take everything at face value. It was more accept what it is because of this relationship, end quote, between Xi and Dazek. He doesn't know what happened in that lab, said the former staffer. He cannot know that. According to Dazek, EcoHealth Alliance, quote, was aware, end quote, of the WIV's research activities related to its NIH grant. He says he had no knowledge of Chinese military involvement there and was never notified of any by the U.S. government. By 2017, despite massive infusions of grant money, EcoHealth Alliance faced a brewing financial crisis. 91% of its funding came from the federal government, and 71% of that came from the PREDICT grant, according to minutes of the organization's finance committee meeting. The renewed grant, known as PREDICT 2, was slated to end in two years. There was no way to know if the grant would be reauthorized for a third time. The looming possibility that it would expire came to be known internally as the predict cliff. How to prevent the organization from tumbling over, it consumed meeting after meeting. One possible solution was the global VROME project, a non-governmental initiative being organized by the infectious disease specialist Dennis Carroll, who had established predict while working at USAID. The global VROME project was far more ambitious. Its goal was to map every possible virus on Earth, an estimated 840,000 of which might infect human beings as a way to, quote, end the pandemic era, end quote. Well, that doesn't sound a little delusional, does it? The program had a step projected, uh, a steep projected price tag of $3.4 billion over 10 years, Dazix explained to the board members. But the cost of not knowing and suffering a pandemic was estimated at $17 trillion over 30 years. Looked at that way, the global VROM project was a relative bargain. <laughs> but there was another way that EcoHealth Alliance could, award, could ward off the $8 million shortfall it was facing. The Defense Department could serve as a federal life raft in a new ocean of grants. Uh, DARPA was seeking proposals for a new program called Preempt, which aimed to identify animal pathogens, quote, to preempt their entry into human populations before an outbreak occurs, end quote. For EcoHealth Alliance, the preempt grant seemed like a slam dunk. For years, Dazak had been developing a method of predictive modeling to identify likely sites of viral spillover around the world and stop pandemics at the source. Some questioned the effectiveness of Dazak's approach. In 20 years of using this method, EcoHealth Alliance did not predict a single outbreak, epidemic, or pandemic, end quote, Maureen Miller told Vanity Fair. But David Morenz, senior advisor to the NIAID, director said that Dazek became one of the key players in understanding that emerging, emerging diseases came from animals. The animals had their own geographic ranges, and if you knew where the animals were and what diseases they carried, you could predict hotspots, end quote. EcoHealth Alliance also doubled down on another key selling point. Its unique on-the-ground connection in China would effectively give the U.S. government a foothold in foreign laboratories. As Dazek had told his staff at a meeting some years earlier, one Defense Department sub-agency wanted, quote, information on what is going on in countries in which they cannot access China, Brazil, Indonesia, and India. And maybe Ukraine, when you think about it. I mean, this is dark, folks. With the predict cliff and the DARPA deadline coming ever closer, Dazak st struck an upbeat note with his board, pointing out that the organization had a strong track record of winning federal grants. Quote, this was the golden ticket, the former staffer familiar with the DARPA grant application said, the message was always, we are going to do cool and cutting edge science. DARPA is the right agency to fund this, end quote. Yeah, I'm sure it was.
Dezek. Last September, EcoHealth Alliance's grant proposal to DARPA was leaked to Drastic, a loosely affiliated global group of sleuths, ranging from professional scientists to amateur data enthusiasts. Dedicated to investigating the origins of COVID-19, from the 75-page proposal, striking detail stood out. A plan to examine SARS-like bat coronaviruses from a four furring cleavage sites and possibly insert new ones that would enable them to infect human cells. Could it be any more clear? I don't know. Why, like, why is this not the biggest news story in the world? It's unbelievable. A fern cleavage site is a spot in the surface protein of a virus that can boost its entry into human cells. SARS-CoV-2, which emerged more than a year after the DARPA grant was submitted, is notable among SARS-like coronavirus for having a unique fern cleavage site. This anomaly has led some scientists to consider whether the virus could have emerged from laboratory work gone awry, or perhaps laboratory work done exactly to plan. Who knows? That was my commentary, not from the article. Documents obtained by Vanity Fair shed new light on the chaotic process surrounding the DARPA proposal, which was co-created with colleagues, including Zhi Zheng Li at the WIV and Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As the March deadline approached, the grant's collaborators worked 24-7 with versions pouring in from around the world. Those documents were being written by many, many people, one former employee recalled. The grant application proposed to collect bat samples from caves in Yunnan province, transport them to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, extract and manipulate the viruses they contain, and use them to infect mice with humanized lungs. It would then map high-risk areas for bats harboring dangerous pathogens and treat test caves with substances to reduce the amount of virus they were shedding. It was a long way for, from saving manatees from motorboats. By almost any definition, this was gain-of-function research. The federal moratorium had been lifted in January 2017 and replaced with a review system called the HHS-P3CO framework, the Potential Pandemic Pathogen Care and Oversight. This required a safety review by the agency funding the research. EcoHealth Alliance's DARPA proposal asserted that its research was exempt from the P3CO framework. It also emphasized the extensive experience of the team it would assemble. But at a staff meeting on March 29th, Dazek expressed dismay at the slapdash and amateur nature of the DARPA submission. It was a, quote, major failure on all accounts, end quote, he noted, enumerating, uh, enumerating a cascade of mistakes. The application was late, sent in 30 minutes after deadline. There were errors uploading documents, comment boxes that remain on the pages, a question of who was in charge, what was needed. He exhorted him, his staff was a change in culture as part of a mentality to get money, end quote, according to the meeting minutes. Inside DARPA, the grant application was met with immediate skepticism. The contract was, quote, never awarded because of the horrific lack of common sense, end quote. It reflected, said a former... DARPA official who was there at the time. Eco, I mean, imagine that DARPA is like, nah, dude, this is too dangerous. <laughs> Eco Health Alliance was viewed as a ragtag group and a middle guy. A backseat collaborator willing to get on an, an air China jet, eat terrible food, and stay in bad hotels, said the former official. Likewise, the WIV was also viewed as subpar, especially when compared with the Harbin Veterinary Research Institute, which operated China's only other high contaminate uh, high containment laboratory with the highest biosafety protocol, BSL-4. Harbin was China's Harvard, said the former DARPA official. The WIV was more like a safety school. EcoHealth Alliance had bolted on a serious scientist, Ralph Barrick, and podged the proposal together, having the nonprofit serve 
as the prime uh, contractor for a global project with national security risks was like having your rental car agency trying to run an armada, said the former DARPA official. Though two of three DARPA reviewers deemed it selectable, the third, a program manager in the Biological Techn Technologies Office, recommended against funding it. He wrote that the application did not adequately mention or access or, or assess the gain of function research, uh, gain of function risk or the possibility that the proposed work could continue uh, constitute dual use research of concern, the technical term for science that can be repurposed to cause harm or endanger security. The DARPA proposal was basically a roadmap to a SARS-CoV-2 like virus. <laughs> says virologist Simon Wayne Hobson, who is among the scientists calling for a fuller investigation of COVID-19's origins. I think we already figured out the origin, folks. I don't know if we need that much research, but go ahead, please. Let's prove it and put people in prison. I would really appreciate that. If the research had had the blessing of a top coronavirus scientist like Barrick, then it is possible the WIV would have wanted to copy what it viewed as cutting-edge science, he said. That doesn't mean they did it, but it means it's legitimate to ask the question, end quote. According to Dazak, no one at DARPA expressed any concerns about the proposed research to EcoHealth Alliance. On the contrary, he said, DARPA told us that we had a strong proposal and wished DARPA had greater funding for the preempt program. He added, the research was never done by EHA or, to my knowledge, any of the collaborating partners on that proposal, end quote. By late December 2019, cases of what would soon be identified as SARS-CoV-2 began emerging around the Hunan, uh, Hunan Seafood wholesale market in the Jianghan uh, district of Wuhan, roughly eight miles from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, coincidentally. Dazak seemed poised to play a leading role in the, emergency, in the emerging crisis. On January 2nd, 2020, he tweeted, the good news is that leading scientists from the US, China, and many other countries are working together to actively block the ability of these viruses to spill over and to rapidly detect them if they do. He continued, this includes active collaboration with China CDC, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and Duke NUS, Barrick Lab, and a diverse array of provincial CDCs, universities, and labs across South and Central China. We were in good hands with you, Dazek. Thanks so much, bud. On January 30th, Dazek went on CGTN America, the U.S. outpost for Chinese state television, and said two things that proved to be spectacularly wrong. Quote, I'm very optimistic that this outbreak will begin to slow down. End quote, he said. We're seeing a small amount of humans of human-to-human -human transmission in other countries, but it's not uncontrollable. He went on to conclude that the Chinese government was taking all necessary steps to be open and transparent and work with WHO and talk to scientists from around the world and where necessary, bring them in to help. They're doing that. It's exactly what needs to happen. In fact, the opposite was true. <laughs> the virus was spreading uncontrollably and the Chinese government was busy crushing anyone who spoke out. It ordered laboratory samples destroyed, punished doctors who raised alarms, and claimed the right to review any scientific research about COVID-19 ahead of publication, a restriction that remains in place today. Unbelievable. At the highest levels of the U.S. government, alarm was growing over the question of where the virus had originated and whether research performed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and funded in part by US taxpayers had played some role in its emergence. Let me give you an answer there. Yeah, it did. To Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC at the time, it seemed not only possible, but likely that the virus had originated in a lab. I personally felt it wasn't biologically plausible that SARS-CoV-2 went from bats to humans through an intermediate animal and became one of the most infectious viruses to humans, he told Vanity Fair. 
Neither this, uh, neither the 2002 SARS virus nor the 2012 MERS virus had transmitted with such devastating efficiency from one person to another. What had changed? The difference, Redfield believed, was the gain-of-function research that she and Barrick had published in 2015 and that EcoHealth Alliance had helped to fund. They had established that it was possible to alter a SARS-like that coronavirus so that it would infect human cells via a protein called the ACE2 receptor. Hey, now! Although their experiments had taken place in Barrick's well-secured laboratory in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who was to say that the WIV had not continued the research on its own? In mid-January of 2020, Vanity Fair can reveal Redfield expressed his concerns in separate phone conversations with three scientific leaders, Fauci, Jeremy Farrar, the director of the UK's Wellcome Trust, and Tedros Aldhanom, uh, Gebreyesus, director general of the World Health Organization. Redfield's message, he says, oh, that's Dr. Tedros. Yeah, I remember him. Redfield's message, he says, was simple. We had to take the lab leak hypothesis with extreme seriousness. It is not clear whether Redfield's concerns are what sparked Fauci's own, but on Saturday night, February 1st at 12.30 a.m., Fauci emailed the NIAID's principal deputy director, Hugh Auchincloss, under the subject line, important. He edited the 2015 paper by Barrick and she and wrote, Hugh, it is essential that we speak this a.m. Keep your cell phone on, end quote. He instructed Auchincloss to read the attached paper and added, you will have tasks today that must be done, end quote. Does that sound a little urgent? Yeah. February 1st proved to be a critical day. With the death count in China passing 300 and cases popping up in more than a dozen countries, Farrar convened a group of 11 top scientists across five time zones. That morning, he asked Fauci to join. My preference is to keep this group really tight, Farrar wrote. Obviously, ask everyone to treat it totally... Uh, eat, treat it treat in total confidence. Fauci, Francis Collins, Christian Anderson, and Robert Gary all joined the call. No one invited Redfield or even told him it was happening. So the guy that brings this to Fauci's attention is not in on the conference call. Why? Why? In the conference call and emails that followed over the next four days, the scientists parsed the peculiarities of SARS-CoV-2's genomic sequence, paying special attention to the fern cleavage site. Dr. Michael Farzan, an, immuno, an immunologist, emailed the group, writing that the anomaly could result from sustained interaction between the chimeric virus and human tissue in a laboratory that lacked appropriate biocontainment protocols, quote, accidentally creating a virus that would be primed for rapid transmission between humans, end quote. He leaned toward the lab origin hypothesis, saying, I think it becomes a question of whether you believe in this series of coincidences what you know of the lab in Wuhan, how much could be in nature, accidental release or natural event. I am 70-30 or 60-40. Yeah, well, I'm like 99-1. That was me, not the writer. He was not alone. Gary wrote of the stunning composition of the fern cleavage site. I really can't think of a plausible natural scenario where you get from the bat virus or one very similar to it, SARS-CoV-2, where... You insert exactly four amino acids, 12 nucleotides that all have to be added at the exact same time to gain this function. I just can't figure out how this gets accomplished in nature, end quote. I can't either, Gary. The previous evening, Anderson had emailed Fauci saying that he and scientists, including Gary Farzan and the Australian virologist Edward Holmes, all found the genetic sequence inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory, end quote. So they all fucking knew it. But within three days, 
Four of the scientists on the call, including Anderson, Gary, and Holmes, had shared the draft of a letter arguing the opposite. Farrar shared a copy with Fauci, who offered feedback ahead of its publication on March 17th in, Na in Nature Medicine. The letter, the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2, analyzed the genom genomic sequence and made a seemingly unequivocal statement. Quote, we do not believe that any type of laboratory-based scenario is plausible. End quote. Fuck these people, man. They knew it, and they lied to you. Put them all in prison forever. <sighs> How they arrived at such certainty within four days remains unclear. Let me guess. They realized their, the nature of their funding, and they realized that it could not come out that this was lab-created because their hands were in it. That's my own commentary, but so obvious. <clears throat> In his book, Spike, The Virus vs. the People, The Inside Story, Farrar cited the addition of important new information, endless analyses, intense discussions, and many sleepless nights. But even as they circulated the draft on February 4th, qualms remained. Farrar wrote to Collins and Fauci that while Holmes now argued against an engineered virus, he was still 60-40 lab. <laughs> A welcome spokesman told Vanity Fair. Dr. Farrar is in regular conversation with and regularly convenes many other expert scientists, he added. Dr. Farrar's view is that there was a no stage, there was at no stage any political influence or interference during these conversations or in the research carried out, end quote. Gary said that it was frankly tiresome to explain for the umpteenth time that that, that, one, that, that was one email cherry-picked among dozens, even hundreds, and part of an ongoing scientific discussion, end quote. Yeah. Well, cherry-picked the truth, so maybe that's why it's cherry-picked, bud. Though he wasn't part of those conversations, the epidemiologist W. Ian Lipkin told Vanity Fair, quote, I have known Fauci for 30 years. Fauci is not interested in anything but the truth. Anyone that says anything otherwise doesn't know him, end quote. Yeah, I don't believe you, fuck. Lipkin was added as a fifth author on the Proximal Origin letter. Ahead of publication, he told his co-authors he was concerned that gain-of-function research on coronaviruses was being performed in laboratories with insufficient safeguards. The Proximal... So he... He's concerned, but he signs he signs his name to that letter. What is happening? Oh, well, I think we know what's happening. We've already listed how much power and money in terms of research Fauci wields. So I'm sure Lipkin, you know, has benefited tremendously from his power. The proximal origin letter addresses that issue, but dismisses a possible accident as the source of SARS-CoV-2. Lipkin was not invited to participate in future publications with the group, such as the preprints by Anderson and Waterbay that made it onto the front page of the New York Times in February. I can speculate on why I've not been asked to join various publications. However, I don't know why I've not been asked, he said. <laughs> While Anderson and the others were fine-tuning the proximal origin letter, Daszak was quietly working to bury speculation of a lab leak. On February 19th, in a letter published in the influential medical journal The Lancet, he joined 26 scientists in asserting, quote, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin, end quote. Nine months later, emails released by a Freedom of Information group showed that Dazak had orchestrated the Lancet statement with the intention of concealing his role and creating the impression of scientific unanimity. <sighs> Under the subject line, no need for you to sign the statement, Ralph, he wrote to Barrick and another scientist, you, me, and him should not sign the statement. So it has some distance from us and therefore doesn't work in a counterproductive way, Desik added. We'll then put it out in a way that doesn't link it back to our collaboration so we maximize an independent voice, end quote. It's like, it's idea laundering, basically. Barrick agreed, writing back, otherwise it looks self-serving and we lose impact, end quote. <laughs> These people are really evil, like really.
<clears throat> the Lancet statement ended with the declaration of objectivity. We declare no competing interests, end quote. Among its signatories were Jeremy Farrar and one other participant in the confidential huddle with Fauci. Reading the Lancet letter with Farrar's name attached to it, Redfield had a dawning realization. He concluded there had been a concerted effort not just to suppress the lab leak theory, but to manufacture the appearance of a scientific consensus in favor of a natural origin. They made a decision, almost a PR decision, that they were going to push one point of view only and suppress rigorous debate, said Redfield. They argued they did an they did it in defense of science, but it was antithetical to science, end quote. Yeah, no kidding. Dr. Redfield's like the only reasonably honorable person involved in all this. A Wellcome uh, spokesperson told Vanity Fair, quote, the letter was a simple statement of solidarity with highly reputable researchers based in China and against non-evidence-based theories. Dr. Farrar does not believe the letter was covertly organized. He had no conflict of interest to declare, end quote. Yeah, he did, actually. As the pandemic spread to every corner of the globe, Daszak continued to devote his considerable energies to promoting the idea that science itself had reached consensus. The virus emerged from nature, not a lab. But as one concerning de detail after another slipped into public view, the facade of unanimity began to crack, exposing his own work to questions. During a White House COVID-19 press briefing on April 17, 2020, a reporter for the right-wing television network Newsmax asked President Trump why the NIH would fund a $3.7 million grant to a high-level lab in China. The details were wrong, and the questions seemed queued up to feed an anti-China anti political agenda. Trump responded, we will end that grant very quickly, end quote. That exchange, in turn, uncorked a question from another reporter to Fauci. Could SARS-CoV-2 have come from a lab? His answer from the White House podium was swift and clear. A recently published analysis from a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists had concluded that the virus was totally consistent with a jump of species from an animal to a human. He was referring to the proximal origin letter drafted by some of the scientists he met with confidentially in early Feb February. The next day, Dazek sent an email of profuse thanks to Fauci for, quote, publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a batch of human spillover, not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, end quote. Fauci responded, thanking him back. Sorry for my anger, but these people are so fucked up. If Dazek thought that Fauci's kind words meant his grant was safe, he was mistaken. Six days later, he received a sharply worded letter from a senior NIH official. His bat coronavirus research grant, which had provided subgrants to the WIV, was being terminated. Amid an uproar and legal threats, the agency reinstated the grant several months later, but suspended its activities. So began a bitter ongoing battle between Dazek and the NIH over whether he complied with the grant's terms. Swaths of this private correspondence has have become public since last September as part of a FOIA lawsuit waged by The Intercept. Dazek also found himself answering increasingly pointed questions about the WIV's decision to take down its online database of 22,000 genomic sequences in September 2019, prior to the known onset of the pandemic. Maureen Miller said the human blood samples that were collected in China as part of the surveillance strategy she designed at Equal Health Alliance could hold clues to COVID-19's provenance, but they went into the WIV and are now out of reach. Why would a database supported by U.S. tax dollars to help prevent and respond to a pandemic be made, quote, inaccessible exactly when it was needed to fulfill its intended purpose, end quote, asked Jamie Metzl, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, who was among the first to call for a full investigation of COVID-19's origin. Thank you, Jamie Metzl. Someone's thinking. Presumably, Dazek possessed a great deal of that inaccessible data. He said as much during a March 2021 panel organized by a London-based think tank, quote, a lot of this work has been conducted with EcoHealth Alliance. 
we do basically know what's in those databases, end quote. Previously, EcoHealth Alliance had signed a, pre a pledge along with 57 other scientists and medical organizations to share data promptly in the event of a global public health emergency. And yet, in the face of just such an emergency, Dazak told Nature Magazine, quote, we don't think it's fair that we should have to reveal everything we do, end quote. Put him in prison. In April 2020, he warned colleagues from other institutions that partnered on the PREDICT grants not to publicly release certain sequences. All, it's extremely important that we don't have these sequences as part of our PREDICT release to GenBank at this point, he wrote. As you may have heard, these were part of a grant just terminated by NIH. Having them as part of a PREDICT will bring very unwelcome attention to the PREDICT program, grant partners, and USAID. By October 2021, the NIH had repeatedly demanded the EcoHealth Alliance turn over data related to its grant research with the WIV. Dazek argued that he couldn't share a number of SARS coronavirus sequences because he was waiting for the Chinese government to authorize the release. The explanation seemed to undercut the entire rationale for having the U.S. government help fund a global collaboration on virus emergence. No shit. Dazek said it was incorrect to suggest that EcoHealth Alliance had not readily shared data and asserted that all of its relevant coronavirus status from NIH-supported research at the WIV had now been made public. He added that he warned about unwelcome detention because he wanted to avoid colleagues being dragged into the political fray unfairly after the NIH's decision to terminate EcoHealth Alliance's grant unleashed a torrent of unwarranted political attacks. U.S. officials and at least one of Dazek's former colleagues were stunned when, in November 2020, the WHO announced that the names of 11 international experts assigned to a fact-finding mission to China to investigate COVID-19's origins. China had veto power over the list, and none of the three candidates put forward by the U.S. had made the cut. Instead, Peter Daszak was listed as America's sole representative. It's still unclear how Daszak wound up on this commission. I didn't want to go, and I said no initially, he later told Science Magazine before adding, if you want to get to the bottom of the origins of coronavirus outbreak in China, the number one person you should be talking to is the person who works on coronaviruses in China, who's not from China. So that's me, unfortunately. <laughs> you created it. Yeah, you should probably figure out where it came from. Oh, but you already knew the answer. So it made for a really easy way to cover it up. And Fauci already knew where the funding came from because he was the one who granted it. So it made it really easy for him to cover it up. So we had the guy who created it and the guy who funded it, both in charge of figuring out the origin story. Do you see a problem here, folks? Dazek told Vanity Fair, WHO reached out to me and asked me to serve on the committee. I initially refused, but following their persuasive arguments, decided that it was my duty as a scientist to support the origins investigation. WHO spokesperson would neither conform nor de deny Dazek's account. One former EcoHealth staffer thinks it's obvious who tapped Dazek for the role. If his name was not among the names floated by the U.S., his was the name that the Chinese government chose, end quote. Interesting. In China, the experts spent half of their month-long mission quarantined in hotels. Once released, they made one trip to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Dazek later described the visit to 60 Minutes. We met with them. We said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually. Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No one was. <laughs> the correspondent Leslie Stahl interrupted, but you're just taking their word for it? Dazek responded, well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions and the answers they gave we found to be believable, correct and convincing. <laughs> 
This is so obvious. On March 24th, 2021, Dazek presented a confidential preview of the WHO's missions, uh, finding to a group of federal health and national security officials in a packed governmental uh, government conference room. Dressed in a tweed jacket instead of his usual hiking gear, he clicked through a 36-slide presentation, which Vanity Fair obtained. Amid the charts, graphs, and old photos from the Hunan market of caged animals that could have harbored the virus, there was one slide devoted to the WIV. It seemed to suggest that the questions swirling around the laboratory as a possible source of the pandemic could be put to rest. There had been an annual uh, external audits with no unusual findings. Access was strictly controlled, and his trusted partner, Xi Zhengli, said there had been no COVID-like illnesses among her staff. The presentation complete, Dazek held up his hands as if waiting for a standing ovation, the attendee recounted. His ego couldn't fit in the room with all those interagency partners, end quote. The WHO Commission released its 120-page final report a week later. The experts had voted by a show of hands that direct transmission from bat to human was possible to likely. Transmission through an intermediate animal was likely to very likely. Transmission through frozen food was possible, and transmission through a laboratory incident was extremely unlikely. Good job, WHO. The report was so error-riddled and unpersuasive that WHO Director General Tedros effectively disowned it the day it was released. As far as WHO is concerned, all hypotheses remain on the table, he said. Three months later, the commission's lead expert, Danish food scientist Peter Ben Ambarek, uh, extinguished the last embers of the report's credibility. He confessed to a documentary film crew that the group had made a backroom deal with the 17 Chinese experts attached to the commission. The report could mention the lab leak theory only on the condition we didn't recommend any specific studies to further that hypothesis and use the phrase, quote, extremely unlikely to characterize it. Incredible. But that wasn't the final shoe to drop. Dazek himself all but admitted in a letter to Dr. Michael Lauer, the NIH's deputy director for extra mural research, that he had signed on to the WHO mission with a personal and professional agenda to gather exculpatory information about the WIV, in part to help lift the curtain of suspicion around this grant so it could be reinstated. Yeah, full one of his money, obviously. I have made extensive efforts to satisfy NIH's board, uh, broad concerns, he wrote on April 11, 2021. This includes serving as an expert on the WHO-China Joint Mission on the Animal Origins of COVID-19, which involved one month on the ground in China, including two weeks locked in quarantine. A great personal burden and risk to me, to our organization, and to my family. He wrote that while he had acted in good faith to follow the WHO's directives for the mission, he had also gathered essential information that specifically addresses one of the demands the NIH had made as a condition of reinstating the grant that he arranged for an outside inspection team to find out if the WIV had SARS-CoV-2 in its possession prior to December 2019, he'd returned with categorical, categorical statements from WIV senior staff that they did not have it prior to December 2019, he wrote, and had managed to get their assurance included, included in the WHO final report. Unfortunately for Dazek, the NIH was unmoved. The grant remains suspended today. On February 25th, 2022, a day before Warabay, Anderson, Gary, and their 15 co-authors rushed their preprints into the public domain, claiming dispositive evidence that SARS-CoV-2 originated from the Huanan market. China CDC published a preprint of its own that contained new data and pointed to a different conclusion. It revealed that of the 457 swabs taken from 18 species of animals in the market, none contained any evidence of the virus. Rather, the virus was found in 73 swabs taken from around the market's environmental uh, environment, all linked to human infections. Thus, while the samples proved the market served as an amplifier of viral spread, they did not prove the market was the source. Yeah, we know. Meanwhile, an analysis published on March 16th 
on March 16th in the medical journal BMJ Global Health, written by a group of Italian scientists and co-authored by Sergey Pond, cites a growing body of evidence indicating that the virus may have been spreading worldwide for weeks or even months before the officially recognized start date of December 2019. If true, this would entirely upend the presumption of the market as the genesis of the pandemic. Yeah, we've already, yeah, it didn't happen in the market, okay? Let's just let that one go. There are still a lot of credible questions that have not been answered, says Pond. And with no overwhelming evidence in either direction, he adds, he is puzzled as to why it's necessary to push in one direction. Responding to written question, Anderson said, I have no particular stake in the idea that SARS-CoV-2 came from the market and not from virology research. The science speaks for itself and the evidence is clear. Simon Wayne Hobson has his own hypothesis for what is taking place. The group of scientists, uh, the group of scientists pushing the claim of natural origin, he says, want to show that virology is not responsible for causing the pandemic. That is their agenda, end quote. There you have it. They want to keep themselves in the clear. I don't think it could be any more clear than that. Like, honestly. They did it. They, they can't possibly let it, the cat out of the bag on that because even if it was accidental, the fact that this research work led to countless lost lives and the devastating effects upon the economy, it would force a public discussion on eliminating all of these projects moving forward and like making them extraordinarily criminal, like capital punishment level criminal. And they can't have that because this is their fucking cash cow. Right? Am I crazy? Could it be any more clear? I think it, I don't think it could be any more clear than that. I really don't. This episode is brought to you by careerhackers.com. You know the daily job hunt news that I've been telling you about? You know the one. I done been told you about it. If your job treated you like slave, if, if that's what they did to you over the past year and a half, especially over the past six months, fuck them. Okay? Move on. You don't need to be treated like that by anybody in your life. I'm serious. Life is too short. Do not. And, and you know, if there's another crazy federal dictate that comes down, they're going to enforce it. They've already shown you their true colors. They don't fucking, they don't care about your rights. They don't care about your own bodily autonomy or your personal sovereignty. None of it. They don't care about you. Um, so you shouldn't have to care about them. Either go work for someone that you, that you know cares about you, or better yet, go work for yourself. Either way. The Daily Job Hunt is an incredible newsletter to, to fire you up, to inform you on how to be the best possible job applicant, or to find your passion and pursue that with your entire being. Because that's what I do every day with this show, and I am so grateful for it. I want more people that listen to this to be living that lifestyle, to feel as good as I do every day when I wake up to do what I'm doing. You can do the same thing. Go do the same thing. Go to careerhackers.com and sign up for the Daily Job Hunt. Plus, check out all of the other products that they have. They have rebranded as Career Hackers because really that's what they're doing. They are enabling you to hack your career. Go to careerhackers.com. So there you have it. From the Vanity Fair, unbelievable write-up. Basically everything that I've been covering for the past two years, proven by actual journalists. How do you do? How do you fucking do? We're not lunatics. We're just early, as is usually the case. Um, I'll let you guys draw your own conclusions. You already have mine. I think we know exactly what transpired. And I don't know. I don't know what else we have to say other than investigation, trial, prison forever. <laughs> That's it. It's really that simple. And I don't know why it, this isn't uh, 
you know, a GOP talking point why every libertarian candidate isn't running it, running on it. I had a, a, a guy on just a week ago who's a libertarian candidate in Arizona, and he he ran away from this topic too. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. Like the truth will set you free. And sometimes the truth will imprison your captors. And that's what we need. We need these people to pay a price. And as I've said, it's not even about vengeance per se, even though that's a nice cherry on the Sunday. But moreover, it's about setting a precedent that you can't do this to free people. And if you do, and you're responsible for it, oh boy, you have to pay a huge price. Just an absolutely enormous price. And I hope that someone, some American politician, be it Dave Smith or whoever is courageous enough to run on the truth and not run away from it. Well, let's see. Let's see what they can do. Let's see what a campaign running on that message might deliver. Because uh, I think people are, are way downplaying the type of popular support there would be for true, genuine, you know, not even necessarily bipartisan, but independent investigations of of this variety. I don't know why it took so long. I don't know why the mainstream media, you know, broadly, why there haven't been more courageous people that have been willing to do this investigative work. I know why if you work for Washington Post or any of these other companies, you wouldn't do it, but I don't really understand why it hasn't been done to this depth on, say, Substack, you know, with Glenn Greenwald or one of these courageous writers that have been out there, you know, covering this stuff. Um, but it seems as if there was a crack. There was a crack in the fortress. And ultimately, as is usually the case, the truth will come out. And it is coming out. Now, it's just a matter of will it be allowed to percolate amongst the American people or will it be poo-pooed and dismissed before they can actually process what's occurred to them? Because I think a lot of people instinctually understand that something very, very wrong happened over the past few years, but they don't actually know why or how. This is the why and this is the how. And as the writers said, you know, they can't come to real firm conclusions, but I think you have enough there. You have enough for a criminal investigation to figure out exactly what happened. And we have to figure it out. This is more, to me, this is more important than the election interference questions with the Trump-Biden campaign or the election itself. Um, I really think it's that important. I mean, a singular election is, it certainly has ramifications and knock-on effects that are important, but this was a paradigm shift. It enabled the government to treat us as if we were property, chattel, slaves, for two years. If that doesn't deserve serious investigation if you can't find a candidate on the gop side that will stand up for you and say fuck you what you did was wrong it was immoral it was corrupt it was evil it was un-american well then don't give them your vote don't even consider supporting these people why should you they're not supporting you <laughs> that's for damn sure before we get out of here i want to uh give you a little bit more fun of an article Pandemic fitness trends have gone extreme, literally. <laughs> I love it when you can just, you can tell something's going to be totally insane right off the bat. White supremacist's latest scheme to valorize violence and hypermasculinity has gone digital. <sighs> By Cynthia Miller Idris, MSNBC opinion columnist. I'm sure she's a 
lunatic feminist. It appears the far right has taken advantage of pandemic at home fitness trends to expand its decade plus radicalization of physical mixed martial arts and combat sports spaces. <laughs> yes, they took advantage of it. All right. Uh, earlier this month, researchers reported that a network of online fascist fitness chat groups on the encrypted platform Telegram are recruiting and radicalizing young men with neo-Nazi and white supremacist extremist ideologies. Initially lured with health tips and strategies for positive physical changes, new recruits are later invited to closed chat groups where far-right content is shared. I'm guessing by far-right content, they mean like Pepe memes, and it's completely overblown, but let's see what else they have to say. Physical fitness has always been central to the far-right. In Mein Kampf, <laughs> they go right to Mein Kampf. Second paragraph, we're already at Mein Kampf. Fucking tremendous. Physical fitness has always been central to the far right. In Mein Kampf, Hitler fixated on boxing and jujitsu. I don't think he fixated on jujitsu. I don't believe that existed in 1930s. Uh, but I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Believing they could help him create an army of millions whose aggressive spirit and impeccably trained bodies combined with fanatical love of the fatherland would do more for the German nation than any mediocre tactical weapons training. In more modern times, far-right groups have launched mixed martial arts and boxing gyms in Ukraine, Canada, and France, among other places, focused on training far-right nationalists in violent hand-to-hand -hand combat and street uh, fighting techniques. It's caught the attention of intelligence authorities, especially in Europe. Can you imagine that, that being your beat? where you have to go investigate MMA gyms to make sure that they aren't sharing MM, you know, MMA Pepe memes, uh, where various reports have noted the role of combat sports in MMA and radicalizing and promoting far-right violence. A series of collaborative efforts between governments, national sports associations, and local gyms in places such as Germany, Poland, and the United Kingdom have introduced an intervention and prevention programs. <laughs> you have to intervene? Really? These four poor kids are like, been locked in their house for two years. They finally find a gym that they can go to and they're like, no, we have to intervene. The U.S. is comparatively far behind. Well, thank God. Thank God we're far behind. Which will only become more and more problematic. Oh, that's a problem. Okay. Especially since the phenomenon is growing in the country. Building on the established fight club culture of MMA far-right extremists, a leader of Maryland skinhead group, for example, once ran a gym to recruit and train white supremacists in mixed martial arts, four members or associates of the racist, violent Rise Above Movement, the self-described premier MMA club of the alt-right, pled guilty to conspiracy to riot after the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. An online propagandist for that now-defunct group was spotted amongst protesters on January 6th last year. Oh, dear God. When members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front marched, marched in Washington, D.C. in December 2021, they were accompanied by a new media outlet created by RAMS founder Robert Rundo, who is working to create a network of far-right MMA active clubs in the u.s and abroad well patriot front being a fbi you know cia op clearly uh and the fact that you're even trying to pretend that january 6th is like some big white supremacist meetup and this is evidence of your entire conspiracy theory i'm dismissing all of this sorry because you've already presented a bunch of bullshit evidence that everyone already knows is bunk oops the intersection of extremism and fitness leans into a shared obsession with the male body <laughs> uh, are you are you calling them homosexuals? Training, masculinity, testosterone, strength, and competition. Oh, that's that. Le wait, that is that's the inter that's the intersection of extremism and fitness. What? Okay. 
the mailbox. All right. Physical fitness training, especially in combat sports, appeals to far right for many reasons. Fighters are trained to accept significant physical pain to be warriors and to embrace messaging around solidarity, heroism, and brotherhood. You can say the same thing about any fraternal organization. So you're basically just criminalizing masculinity. Cool. It's championed as a tool to help fight the coming race war and the street battles that will precede it. Recruits are encouraged to link individual uh, moral virtues such as willpower, decisiveness, and courage. Oh, all terrible things. With desired collective traits such as virility and manliness. Again, terrible traits. Uh, this also works in reverse with white supremacists encouraging potential recruits or activists to stay in good physical shape as a way of managing self-presentation to the public. Well, sorry. I don't see anything wrong with that. Don't make me side with the fucking white supremacists. <laughs> you should stay in shape. It's a good idea. It's healthy. Uh, the neo-Nazi blogger Andrew Anglin, never heard of him, advised his followers that fat people should be required to commit to losing weight if they are to stay involved with the groups or in-person gatherings, noting that continued obesity should not be tolerated. <laughs> Based. Uh, with recruitment now moving from physical gyms to chat rooms, live stream fights, tournaments, festivals, and even combat sports videos, uh, video games. We're seeing extremist fighting culture being combined with an entertainment culture that's already valorizes violence and hypermasculinity. Fitness, of course, is a staple and a hobby for many people for whom it is enjoyable and rewarding for brain health and overall well-being. Yeah, of course. Physical fitness channels dopamine, adrenaline, and serotonin in ways that literally feel good. Yes, of course. Intertwining those feelings with hateful and dehumanizing ideas while promoting the concept that physical warriors are needed to create the strength and dominance to defend one's people from a perceived enemy makes for a dangerous and powerful cocktail of radicalization. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. This is such lunacy. Ah, There's literally nothing they can't contort into being some fringe alt-right right-wing thing. Like, I know there's lots of people in the libertarian realm that are getting into bodybuilding and stuff just primarily because you tried to break our brains for the past two years and we're trying to stay sane. You want to radicalize people, you start to label physical fitness as being a radical. For those of us working to find better pathway to reach at-risk youth, understanding the ways that far-right groups recruit and socialize youth in ways that go, beyond, go well beyond rhetoric and ideas is crucial. It's critical that leaders, including parents, physical trainers, gym owners, coaches, and others in the fitness world understand how online grooming and recruitment can intersect with spaces that we generally think of as promoting health and well-being. The realm of online fitness now provides a new and ever-expanding market for reaching and radicalizing young men, and it requires our targeted focus and resources to try and stop the cycle. Sorry, I can't take this seriously. This shit pisses me off, to be honest. It's, it's genuinely insane. Like, you're not well. You're just, you're not well. You're not. Like, you need to hit the gym. <laughs> you need to be radicalized just a little bit. Because <laughs> this is not healthy. Uh, got a few more for you. Moderna's first dose, pay attention, 236,316. A big difference. All right. So let's drill down into that. You see something pretty creepy. Some of you are probably already remembering that a few weeks ago here on this show, which as far as I know is the only platform where anyone is doing the kind of reporting that should be done. By the way, this is Naomi Wolf and she is on The War Room with Steve Bannon. About this vastly important trove of documents 
you remember we did a feature on how there were different dosages of the mRNA, the lipid nanoparticles um, between Pfizer and Moderna and the other brands. Well, there's an 89,000 difference between Pfizer's bad outcomes and Moderna's bad outcomes, much worse for Moderna. So I will now tell you that remember the Moderna micrograms were 100 micrograms per dose for adults and Pfizer's first dose was 30 micrograms. So right there, people who got Moderna for a first dose, and I don't want to scare upset anyone, but you know, the sooner we realize what has happened here, the better, the better we can treat people and care for people, right? Moderna was three times the amount of lipid nanoparticles. I keep going back to these, these tiny, hard, fatty casings, these industrial casings. You can buy them. You can go on the internet and order them from pharmaceutical supply companies in, in boxes, right? They're, they're, they're lipid nanoparticles. And we remember we found from the Pfizer documents that they're going, not staying in the site of your arm, but going into the bloodstream within 48 hours, into the lymph, into adrenals, liver, spleen, and ovaries. So the big question there is, is the 89,000 more adverse events from the first dose of Moderna in any way connected to people getting triple the amount of the, the mRNA and the lipid nanoparticles in their bloodstreams? That's a huge question that's been surfaced. Um, and of course, we're going to keep diving into it. The other thing I want to point out, super creepy, and I sent the wonderful Cameron the link so you can all see this for yourselves if you want, a spreadsheet where you can see dose three of what was clearly intended to be a six dose course, right? Oh, the booster, oh, the booster. This was planned from the very beginning that there would be six different dosages. So we're not quite there yet. <laughs> um, so in the spreadsheet, which I will send, um, there are different codes for how they administer the vaccine. So one of them is intramuscular. I'm gonna stop it there, but I thought it was interesting um, that it appears that the the makeup of the Moderna vaccine was, for whatever reason, uh, she she detailed it there that it's apparently the nanoparticles, the lipid nanoparticles, um, amounted to more reports in VARES of adverse reactions. So the only reason I'm presenting it to you, I, I don't know if there's any tremendous validity to this, but this was. The, from the uh, the treasure trove of documents that were released by Pfizer this week uh, or a week ago. This is the second batch of documents that they didn't want to release for 75 years. So I think it's very important that you pay attention to what is in them uh, because there was a reason they didn't want to release them, let's be honest. And uh, Naomi Wolf feels that this is part of the reason why, is that Moderna apparently had you know triple the amount of negative reactions that Pfizer had. So the reason I'm bringing it to you guys is because if that's the case, if you're one of the people that got Moderna, you might want to, you know, go, go get your blood work done. Just make sure that you're okay. And I didn't want to bring it up to scare anybody. As I've said, I have no idea the validity of this stuff. And, and it certainly is not enough for you to go, oh, well, I got Moderna, so I'm screwed. Like, I don't know, but I think it's, it's noteworthy enough that I would feel, uh, as if I wasn't doing my job to at least let you know. Like there is some, some evidence that there is perhaps a correlation to increase danger, uh, depending on which one you got. So just something to keep in mind. And this one's fascinating. We got, uh, from financial of underground, uh, the, uh, it's oil for gold and Bitcoin, the end of the petrodollar and what it means for you. And I've been talking about this on my Twitter, uh, for a few weeks now and trying to kind of express to people why I see this as a, a very important paradigm shift and something that everyone should be paying attention to. 
they say the petrodollar system's demise appears to be imminent. It has enormous geopolitical and financial consequences that most investors don't understand. That's essentially what I said a week ago. Uh, the real reason for China and Russia's massive gold stash. It's no secret that China and Russia have been stashing away as much gold as they can for many years. China is the world's largest producer and buyer of gold. Russia is number two. Today, it's clear why China and Russia have had an insatiable demand for gold. They've been waiting for the right moment to pull the rug from beneath the petrodollar system. And now is that moment. After it invaded Ukraine, the U.S. government kicked Russia out of the dollar system and seized hundreds of billions in, dollars, uh, in dollar reserves of the Russian central banks. That's true. Upwards of 600 billion, if I remember correctly. Washington has threatened to do the same for chi to China for years. These threats helped ensure that China cracked down on North Korea, didn't invade Taiwan, and did other things the U.S. wanted. These threats against China may be a bluff, but if the U.S. government carried them out, as it recently did against Russia, it would be like dropping a financial nuclear bomb on Beijing. I also tweeted that out a couple weeks ago, that that's what we had done to Russia. So financial nuclear bomb. Weird. Weird when you see something that you could have written. Uh, without access to dollars, China would struggle to import oil and engage in international trade. As a result, its economy would come to a grinding halt, an intolerable threat to the Chinese government, which is why they're now allying with Russia, duh. China would rather not depend on an adversary like this. This is one of the main reasons it created an alternative to the petrodollar system. This system will allow anyone in the world to trade oil for gold. It will bypass the U.S. dollar financial system and sanctions. Here's how it works. After years of preparation, the Shanghai International Energy Exchange, INE, launched a crude oil futures contract denominated in Chinese yuan in 2017. Since then, any oil producer can sell its oil for something besides U.S. dollars, in this case, the Chinese yuan. I did not know this. This is why I am reading it to you, because this is really big. Uh, there's one big issue, though. Most oil producers don't want to accumulate a large reserve of yuan, and China knows this. That's why. China has explicitly linked the crude futures contract with the ability to convert yuan into physical gold without touching China's official reserves through gold exchanges in Shanghai, the world's largest physical gold market, and Hong Kong. This is why I am have recently become significantly more bullish on gold. Not financial advice, just my personal opinion. PetroChina and Sinopec, two Chinese oil companies, provide liquidity to the yuan crude futures by being big buyers. So if any oil producer wants to sell their oil in yuan and gold indirectly, there will always be a bid. After years of growth and working out the kinks, the INE yuan oil future contract is now ready for prime time. It comes at the perfect moment. Russia is the world's largest energy producer. China is the world's largest energy importer. And Russia is Beijing's largest oil supplier. And now that the U.S. has banned Russia from the dollar system, there is an urgent need for a credible system capable of handling hundreds of billions worth of oil sales outside of the U.S. dollar and financial system. The Shanghai International Exchange uh, Energy Exchange is that system. Other countries on Washington's naughty list are enthusiastically signing up. And I've tweeted this exactly, <laughs> exact thing out too. For example, Iran, another major oil uh, producer, accepts yuan as payment. So do Venezuela, Nigeria, and others. Even Saudi Arabia. The linchpin of the petrodollar system, which, by the way, refused Joe Biden's call about a month ago, is flirting in the open with China about selling its oil in yuan. One way or another, and probably soon, the Chinese will find a way to compel the Saudis to accept the yuan. China is already the world's largest oil importer. Moreover, the amount of oil it imports continues to grow as it fuels an economy of over 1.4 billion people, more than four times larger than the U.S., the sheer size of the Chinese market makes it impossible for Saudi Arabia and other oil exporters to ignore China's demand to pay in yuan indefinitely. The Shanghai International Energy Exchange further sweetens the deal for oil exporters. Think about it. An oil producing country has two choices. Option one, the petrodollar. 
The dismal financial situation of the U.S. Uh, guarantees the dollar will lose significant purchasing power. Plus, there's an enormous political risk. Oil producers are exposed to the whims of the U.S. government, which can confiscate their money whenever it wants, as it recently did to Russia. Let me add something there. Um, what allowed or what enabled the petrodollar system to work for so long is that the inflation in the U.S. dollar had been moderate, mild even, where 2 to 3%, pretty much like clockwork, that's what you would lose and the purchasing uh, power of your savings in U.S. dollars for the past hundred years. That's kind of been what it is. I mean, there's obviously anomalies, anomaly periods like in the 70s and things like that. But for the most part, it's been pretty consistent. Two, 2% or so, that's kind of like, that's an acceptable loss when it comes to fiat. And then on top of that, you have all of the, you know, the militaristic mechanisms that they use when it came to Gaddafi in Libya or uh, Saddam in Iraq. Uh, where if you tried to get off the petrodollar system, well, you may not be long for this earth. So now that that's ending, you know, you have a nuclear power that America really can't go to war with. Well, then why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they make this move at this point? If you're going to treat them as if they have no capacity to to punish you back, well, then they're it's over. I mean, mutually assured destruction goes both ways, folks. And if you're going to ignore the potential destructive capacity of Russia, then they're going to ignore us or, or ours and just assume that it's a, you know, it's a bluff. And God willing, let's let's hope it is. Option number two, Shanghai International Energy Exchange. Here, an oil producer can participate in the world's largest market and try to capture more market share. It can also easily convert and repatriate its proceeds into physical gold, an inter international form of money with no political risk. From the perspective of an oil producer, the choice is a no-brainer. Even though most people have not realized it yet, it marks the end of the petrodollar system and a new monetary era. So because of that, I think you're going to see a flood of money into gold. I really do. If, if they don't relent on the sanctions against Russia, which it doesn't appear that they have any intention of, and if Russia doesn't relent on its intention of essentially conquering the eastern portion of Ukraine, which it doesn't look like they have any intention of, well, then it seems as if we're at a, you know, at loggerheads where you're going to see more and more of the countries on our quote unquote bad shit list, whatever you want to call it, um, shift to using China, the Yuan and gold to trade these goods. Uh, not to mention Bitcoin, which Russia has said that you can actually buy their gas. Uh, was it gas? Yes, it was. Their gas in Bitcoin. Uh, but you couldn't buy it in U.S. dollars. That's powerful, folks. I mean, that really puts a, a bid into both of those asset classes. And if inflation's here to stay, which it may be, I don't know. But if it is, uh, I think gold and Bitcoin look far more bullish to me than real estate does because real estate is predicated so much on interest rates, whereas gold and Bitcoin, not nearly as much. So food for thought there. NBC News, U.S. government digital currency. Uh, title of the article is Biden takes big step towards government-backed digital currency. U.S. digital currency could be on the horizon. The Biden administration is putting its support behind the research and development of a U.S. central bank digital currency, or CBDC. The move is part of a sweeping executive order President Joe Biden signed Wednesday instructing the federal government to explore possible uses of and regulations for digital assets like cryptocurrency currencies. My administration places the highest urgency on research and development efforts into the potential design and deployment options of the United States CBDC, the executive order reads. So the only reason I'm bringing it up is that for the longest time, 
the entire concept of the CBDC, the central bank digital currency was conspiracy theory, woo woo nonsense. And like you had to, you had to always bring it up cautiously and not, not confidently. Look, the president, you know, his executive order says it, they are focused on this. They realize that it's time that it's coming and it's time that we stop pretending as if this is not happening. Okay. It's happening. They are working on a CBDC. They have been working on it. I've covered it, covered it for months now, and it's it's coming. So the the entire paper fiat hegemony, US dollar system, all of it, it's coming to an end. You know, that doesn't mean that the CBDC, the US dollar coin, can't somehow replace it. Uh, I don't know if it can. I don't know how it could, to be honest, but the US dollar paper is being replaced like in the next five to 10 years at most, in my opinion, seriously, <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Um, so I just want you guys to be privy. You know, I want you to be aware this is, this is not some doomsdaying far reaching future prognostication. This is coming. This is almost now like it. If they're already working on it, which we know they are, because they had Amari Sachet and Tobias Ruck on, and they talked about it. Um, there's central banks that are already working on white papers for this stuff in America. Uh, China already has it. So yeah, it's here. It's here and the rollout is only a matter of time. And I think that the next financial crisis will be the catalyst for that transition. And I think that that financial catalyst very well may be what is in reality the actual Great reset. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think that's what the great reset actually is. I think that the great reset is actually the transition from the the debt apocalypse that we are uh, that is coming down the tracks, uh, paired with the end of fiat globally and a shift to digital fiat. They think our our hope and our goal is that it be a decentralized digital currency, a la Bitcoin or something to that extent pirate chain, whatever. Um, so yeah, stay frosty, be ready. There is a tremendous amount of tumult in the economy right now. I am nervous as all hell. And I know it seems as if because I've kind of been doom saying for a year plus now that uh, he's just just feeling the same way. No, 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 no. This is different. Like it, I can feel it in my bones. Like this economy is not long for this earth. It just doesn't feel right. The productivity is so diminished because so many people set on unemployment. You have su supply chain breakdowns because the inflationary pressures that, that now exist are, are not just a product of all of the printing that existed uh, or that they pushed through or the borrowing that they did to fund all of this nonsense, but it's also a product of the lack of productivity that happened because of lockdowns. And you now have genuine supply shortages. And it is not as simple as, oh, we we just increase stimulus and all the problems go away. You can't increase, you cannot increase stimulus when you have inflation like this. And you can't hike interest rates when you have debt like this. They are in a catch 22 for the ages. This is how every debt super cycle ends. I mean, like the super cycle, not a debt cycle, but a super cycle. This is how they end. And I think that's what we're experiencing. And I think most people are completely oblivious or if they, if they sense it, it's just kind of a ethereal feel. They don't, they don't understand why. 
You know, they they are probably thinking to themselves, well, this economy should have collapsed a long time ago, shouldn't it, Clint? Well, you're right. It should have. Um, but they printed $7 trillion last year. So that buys you some time, you know? Uh, maybe it was a year and a half ago now. I can't remember. Anyways, uh, stay frosty. I keep saying it. I mean it. Be proactive. Be making sure that your career is on the right track, that your income is right, that your savings are right, that you're diversified, uh, that you have hedges on in, in many directions. Try and profit from this stuff. And then last but not least, be warning people to some extent. You don't, you don't have to scare them, but you should be at least informing them of what you see coming if you agree with my prognosis. If you don't agree with it, obviously don't go telling people. But if you agree with it, if you see what I see, I would encourage you to go and warn people that there is the potential for imminent serious financial problems, food shortages, serious inflation, deflationary collapse if they're to hike interest rates too rapidly or much more at all, um, major shortages of raw goods, raw materials, as we've made so many countries you know, illegal to import stuff here or export stuff to us. This is all a recipe for disaster. And I think that that's why many conspiracy theorists believe that the Great Reset consists of these decisions that make no fucking sense, unless your intention is to break the existing financial paradigm and to begin anew with the Great Reset. We'll catch you next time. By the way, I will be in Dallas with Dave Smith and Scott Horton. I will be their opener. Can you fucking believe it? So crazy. Uh, I think that uh, you guys will really enjoy it. I'm going to be given 30 minutes, followed by however long Scott and Dave do. I'm sure they do a lot longer, uh, but it's going to be an amazing experience. I have tweeted out the details many times, so go ahead and check my feed at Liberty Lockpot to get the details on that. Uh, I think it's free to delegates um, or free to Mises Caucus members, or it's like a $10 donation that you have to give. So it's very reasonable. It'll probably sell out, to be honest, because Dave and Scott, that's a big, big one-two punch. Uh, the fact that I get to be the third man the third wheel in that uh, that super cycle is pretty cool. So I hope to see some of you guys there, and I will catch you next week. Thanks so much. Last but not least, go to toplobster.com and pick up one of these killer shirts. Look at that. Look at that. It's so fire. If you guys haven't got one yet, you're fucking up, man. You're just you're making a mistake. Go to toplobster.com. Look up Liberty Lockdown. Pick up the latest design. It's my favorite one yet. It looks so good. Everyone that wears it is just like, yo, that shit is sick. People come up to me and they talk to me about it. They go, hey, what is that? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, again, go to toplobster.com. Thank you so much for supporting the show. This is obviously uh, way too uh, intense to have been on YouTube. So this will be, again, an exclusive on my Locals channel. If you want to become a supporting member, I will be doing an AMA next Tuesday, I think it's next Tuesday at 8 p.m. It may be Wednesday. I'll, I'll clarify that. Uh, next Tuesday or Wednesday at 8 p.m. on libertylockdown.locals.com gives you an opportunity to come on stream with me live and ask whatever you want. Crazy questions, good questions, in-depth questions, deep questions, philosophical questions, financial questions, dating questions. I don't give a shit. Ask me whatever you want. Go to libertylockdown.locals.com and become a supporting member of the show. We already have like dozens of people that are supporting the show which is so fucking cool and i cannot wait to meet you guys i love this is the second one i've ever done and i think it's going to be a great turnout uh, especially after the speech i give on saturday i really hope that we have some more people that are are interested in getting involved with this community because it is it's growing and it's a beautiful thing 
Thank you. Before we get out of here, I want to thank the people that continue to leave five-star reviews. Turns out, wherever you're listening to the podcast, you can leave a five-star review. This is how much of a fucking boomer I am. I didn't even realize it. I go and I look on Spotify, and there's almost 100 review, five-star reviews on Spotify. I was like, yo, y'all are hooking a brother up, and I had no idea. On Spotify, you can't leave a write-up, but you can leave a five-star review. So if you are listening on Spotify right now, do me a huge favor and scroll to the top of the page and click review and just smash that five stars for me. It helps with the algos, helps get me out there, helps me be correlated with more shows that you like, like whatever you're listening to, be it part of the problem with Dave Smith or Tom Woods or Scott Horton or Malice or whoever you're listening to. It'll start to have me come up for recommended podcasts when they are listening to those shows. So if you guys can help me out with that, I'd really appreciate it. And to those that continue to leave five-star reviews on on Apple uh, Podcasts, I really appreciate it. We're up to 360 now. We got DDD says, Astounding research and awesome guests. I love Liberty Lockdown. How he finds all these papers and links is superb. The guests are always on point too, and the laser-focused analysis on policy is a helpful way forward. Well, thank you, DDD. I really appreciate it. I do try my best to do exactly that. And then we got Neto 8 says, Nice. Nice job getting the judge on the show. <sighs> You're telling me, brother. I was so pumped to get Judge Andrew Napolitano. If you guys missed any of those episodes, please go back and check them out. Judge Knapp, Roger Stone, Dave Smith. That's been my last two weeks. It's a big last two weeks. And I don't know if I've actually said this on the air yet, but... I did over 100,000 downloads last month. Couldn't have done it without you guys. Thank you so much for sharing the show with friends, family. The fact that it's catching on, the fact that people are are vibing with the message that I have is incredible because it gives me hope. Tells me that there's a chance. There's a chance chance for a, a potential you know libertarian revolution here moving forward. So continue to share. Continue to leave your five-star reviews. And as I've said many times, if you leave a five-star review with a write-up on Apple Podcasts with uh, your social media or whatever whatever you want to plug, I will read it on the audio-only version of the show every couple weeks. I'll do, do that. Thank you guys so much. I will catch you next time. Big shout-out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode, your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold, where did it come from and where did it go, it requires a fight, not tweet from your phone, don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne, if you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home, the virus is scared of, will come and it'll go, the government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe, like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening, scared Hollywood left these lyrical feminine, a typo with Luke might bring them nooses, we all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses, freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit, knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running out, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house The malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so hot 
shot must be air July Screaming in the mic and rip a 59 Miles to ratio that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows this don't get treated like a hoe